0: For that, if you don't know me, my name's Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at our Riverdale location of Alpine Church. And we are continuing on in our series in the book of Mark. And we're, we've just reached chapter 11. In fact, last week, I'm going to give you a little recap. Um, we've entered the portion of Scripture in the book of Mark where it is the last week of Jesus' life. We call that Passion Week. The reason why it's called Passion Week Because it starts the, the beginning of Jesus' uh, persecution and suffering and rejection. Although he's challenged and been challenged by the religious leaders and, and has had many people reject him. It's at this point when he enters the city of Jerusalem that he knows his time is coming to an end. And so with that as our background, last week um, we, we saw at the end of the story of the triumphal entry when Jesus rode in on a donkey, humble as a king, fulfilling prophecy, but not in the way that they would expect. And they all said, Hosanna in the highest, which means save us now. Jesus, in verse 11 of chapter 11, enters Jerusalem into the temple. And it says this in verse 11, As he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And many, many of us, we we thought that this was maybe anticlimactic to the story, and, and so we had to dig a little bit deeper into what, what would have Mark would have, what was he trying to get us to understand through the Holy Spirit? What was he saying? And 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 what I believe is helped us understand that verse last week is what's going to happen in this week's story. Jesus was inspecting the temple he had come to the place where the people were supposed to be the most faithful and he's inspecting he is auditing the house of god to see if there's really true worship in there and so that leads us to the next couple of verses that we're going to be in if you have your bibles your bible app we've got free bibles by the way at the welcome table Uh, always if you need a free bible please grab one Uh, go out and get one. Um, But we're going to be in Mark chapter 11 verses 12 through 25. I don't even know if we'll actually even make it all the way to the end because there's so much in here. But we're talking about fruitless religion because Jesus does some things in these next couple of verses that, that are like a picture of what he's about to do. His judgment on the people, whether they were found faithful or not. And so let's get right into this in verses 12 through 14. It says, The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off, so he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. So he basically curses this fig tree. Now again, if, if the triumphal entry was Sunday, that's also uh, called Palm Sunday, the week before Easter Sunday. So then they went home after that, it's said in Scripture, and now they're coming back on a Monday, and as they're coming into the city, Jesus sees a fig tree, and he's hungry. Now this shows us a little bit of the humanity of Jesus, by the way. Jesus is fully man, and yet fully God. But as a human, we see he had normal human traits and attributes one of them being hungry and oftentimes in scripture we see that Jesus uses real world human examples to teach us a greater truth and so don't get caught up on the fact that it, it might sound a little weird that Jesus is hungry and at first glance it looks like since the tree didn't have any fruit on it he overused his godly attributes to curse this tree no that's not really what's going on He's about to teach a lesson, some things that he wants us to know and wants the the city of Jerusalem, the temple worshipers, the Jewish people to know. So he curses a fig tree. What he sees is this tree that has a bunch of leaves on it. Now, I, I just was walking into the church, and actually there's a tree right here, and it and it blocks that alpine church sign every time it gets too tall. And I hate that tree. I wish we could curse that tree. Or if you know anybody that likes to trim trees, um, send them my way. But as I was walking in and I'm thinking about this sermon, I'm actually thinking that this tree actually has these little buds on it. And that's what what this tree would have looked like as well. It's in full leaf. It's it's uh, end of March, early April, and as it says, it, is, it isn't the season for fruit. And so you would almost think, well, this is unfair, Jesus, that you would curse this tree because it's not actually the season for fruit yet. Some people believe that there were these little buds on a, on a fig tree that in this time, even though uh, the figs weren't fully grown, they could still be eaten. But, but in any case... I don't think we need to get caught up on that it wasn't the season for fruit. I think the, the thing is, is that Jesus looks at a fig tree. Now, what's the significance of a fig tree? Well, the fig tree represents some of the traits and characteristics of the fruitfulness of, of the land that God had given the Israelites. If you remember the story of God taking the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, and he said, I have a land for you, a land flowing with milk and honey, and it was a promise to take his chosen people, this nation that would represent God on the earth, and he would take them to a place that there was their own land. It was going to be a beautiful land. In fact, uh, Deuteronomy 8 talks about it like, the li- like this, and he's reminding them as they're about to enter into the promised land in the book of Deuteronomy with Moses. It says, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, this was a very fertile land. And in fact, fig trees are all over in Israel. Um, some in orchards, but some just growing wild everywhere. And, and there's many other times in the Old Testament, um, I think even when the spies went to go spy it out, um, they, would, they would see that this land had so much, so much fruit to it. And fig trees were one of those things and it represents the blessing of God. But what is Jesus trying to say here with this, this analogy of him cursing this tree to where it will never bear any fruit again? Well, I say to you that he, as he went and inspected the temple, he found no fruit. Just like on this tree the next day. He went into the temple and what had happened was is that the Jewish people had taken what God had given them and added all kinds of rules and laws and commandments that God never gave and ways of worship, heartless worship. It was all this duty, this this works-based faith and religion that was producing no real fruit. What it become is a burden to, pe- to people. It would become a disease. Actually, in Matthew chapter 7, you know, Jesus talks about fruit and false teachers, and he says he says something like, uh, beware of false teachers, you will know them by their fruit. and And it says that a good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. And so, Just like having no fruit, bad fruit could be even worse because it's useless. It makes you work even harder. And so many times Jesus uses this analogy, talking about fruit and fig trees, just like in, uh, I want to go to Luke 13 for a second here. He tells a parable earlier on in his ministry. Similar to what we're seeing him enact the last week of his life. It says he told this parable. A man had a fig tree, planted it in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put manure on it put on manure, then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Interestingly enough, this parable uses three years, the, the number three years in there, and if you, if you remember, if you know about Jesus' ministry life, he actually started it somewhere around the age of 30 and then was crucified at the age of thirty. Three And so his ministry life was three years, and he had been coming in and out of Jerusalem, the city, every year coming to see how the fruit was doing. And little did many people know that Jesus in this parable was actually talking about him coming to the city that's supposed to be the faithful city that represents God, that his very presence dwelt in this temple, and sacrifices were being done. To worship God, and yet when Jesus comes to the temple on the third year, he finds no fruit, no real fruit. Just hollow, empty religion. And so, this means that judgment needs to happen then. God does not want fruitless religion. He wants real worship, heartfelt worship. In, in, um, I think it's in, in, in John chapter 4, Jesus says, my people are going to worship me in spirit and in truth. He wants real faith. But they've gotten it all wrong. In fact, if I go back a verse in, in uh, Mark 7 earlier on, um, Jesus, in an interaction with the Pharisees, said this. He said, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people hon- honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You see, the Ju- Judaism, the Jewish faith, had become a burden to all humans, all people. Even the people that were going to proselyze and bring back to the city. In fact, uh, where we're at in, in, in context is this is Passover. And what would happen during Passover week is that many of the converts that, that lived outside of Jerusalem, even outside of Israel and different lands and different countries would travel many miles to come and be in the city for this feast of Passover to pay their due and homage at the temple but all of these people doing all of this work but none of it was really heartfelt faith I think that can still happen today we look around 2000 years later that's still going on with all the different religions uh, that spun out of Christianity. Some religion call themselves Christian, but they've added all kinds of rules and laws and commandments because people don't understand that all of the sacrificial system and the commandments of God were all pointing to God's heart, how sinful humanity is, and how nobody could ever measure up, and that Jesus would be the ultimate sacrifice on this Passover weekend, and we saw last week that they did not know the day of their visitation. They didn't correctly understand the King, the Messiah, and this is where then judgment occurs. They had so many chances to get this right. In fact, God himself came down to earth to correct them, to show them, and they still rejected him, and so that leads us to Jesus Um, in in the book of Mark, we've talked about there are these things called intercalations, and it's where Mark's telling a story, and right in the middle of a story, uh, it's another another scene. Like, there's all these camera scenes kind of like watching a movie. You've ever watched a movie, and and you're at one scene at one person's house or in one person's life, and then all of a sudden it switches to somewhere else. Well, that's what Mark does. It's a fast-paced, moving gospel. We've been excited to go through it, but As we go on in these verses, it kind of jumps from the fig tree and it shows us Jesus now in the temple. It says, When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you've turned it into a den of thieves. You see, many people talk about Jesus like he never was angry. He never uh, was bold. He didn't stand up and offend people at all. You know, I hear that all the time. Is like some people say, um, I only like the words in red in the Bible because Jesus was really nice and gracious and all those things, right? And and the other God, the God of the Old Testament, some people say this isn't isn't nice, like Jesus was. But yet, we get this picture in the last week of his life he walks into this place that's supposed to be a place about worshiping God, and he finds that everybody has made it common. Everybody has made it unholy. They're buying and selling things. And just, again, the context of all these people coming into Passover, well, they wouldn't have brought sacrifices to bring to the temple, or it would have been too much for some people to do, inconvenient for some people to do. And so what they had done is like, oh, we're, we've got an idea. Let's set up in the outer court just this marketplace and we can make money and we can charge tax and we can we can do things for the Lord right and ultimately benefit for it as well and they had turned it into a den of thieves people ripping people off charging too high a price and Jesus is just sick of it and so what does he do he flips over the tables now this is one of the 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 characteristics about Jesus that I really love the most, I probably need to get better at the other kinder characteristics about Jesus. Um, but I often think of this time because I know that Jesus cares about how we worship. He cares about what we do um, in His house. He cares about if we really have a heart after God, or are we just going through the motions? Something interesting, I was uh, uh, one of the other pastors shared this with me, and it was on Instagram, and it was a, a pastor who had said that, you know, artificial intelligence, which is a thing nowadays, you know, did this artistic depiction of what it looked like when Jesus flipped over the tables, and here's what it looks like. He's literally flipping over the table, like a backflip over the table. And this really, it actually makes me angry. Because I think about this, and as we think about, um, you know, technology and, you know, trying to be more like the culture or whatever. Like the church has this struggle that sometimes that we're called out to be holy and separate from the world, but there are some pastors who have recently, in the rise of artificial intelligence, has said, you know, I don't want to prepare sermons much anymore. And AI, it's a really great tool. And I'm not saying there's anything evil or wrong about technology, but but AI in particular, um, people are using this now to write their sermons, and they're just getting up and and saying what this what the, this soulless. Spiritless computer has compiled all this information from the internet uh, to say truth about Jesus and about Bible verses. But this really shows that even AI doesn't understand that God is a holy God. That although Jesus is gracious and kind and loving, he also has, has, in a sense, judged the nation of Israel already. And is going to come back one day and judge all of creation. And that's a scary thing for the world. And and that's a scary thing for a lot of people to even think about. Most people leave the idea out that Jesus is coming back to judge the world. And those whom he finds faithful will go to be with God in eternity with him. But those who go through the motions call themselves religious but don't have a real relationship with God, those who don't honor the Lord as holy will not be with him and be judged. So Jesus walks into the temple. He's cursed the fig tree. Now he's cleansing and clearing the temple. And he's doing all of this to show what's going to happen to them if they keep doing what they're doing, if they keep rejecting Jesus, and if they keep wanting religion rather than a relationship, what's going to happen is exactly what happens to the fig tree. Now we go back. Well, after this, or actually, right after he flipped the tables, it said, when the leading priests and teachers of the religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching, These things Jesus needed to do, by the way, during Passion Week, to make sure that they killed him. He needed to stand up and be bold and stand for the truth. He knew that his time had come after three years of ministry, after three years of spreading the truth, after three years of developing disciples who are going to go and, and plant churches and, and, and write the rest of the New Testament... And get the kingdom of God going here on earth. Jesus knew their rejection of him. And they were being judged already. We go back to the fig tree. It says that evening Jesus and disciples left the city. So that's the end of Monday night. Next morning, Tuesday morning, as they passed by the fig tree it cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look! Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. That picture of this fig tree that the disciples, they're in awe. Peter is in awe. And he says, what you did, that's amazing. And the picture of this tree from the roots up. Normally, a tree is diseased from the top at first. We have a tree in our yard, actually, that is a crab. Crab apple tree. And when we were going through that, you know, that drought uh, for when we just had the really dry season or whatever, like um, that tree didn't really produce any fruit. And um, somebody told me that you can, you know, go clip, clip off parts that are diseased and, and, and when it comes back next year, it'll be a healthier tree. And of course, I didn't do that because I have no clue how to take care of a crab apple tree. And and I feel like crabapple trees are useless anyway. I mean, like, I, maybe somebody's going to come up afterwards and tell me you can make pie or something out of it. But I, I ain't got time for that. Ain't nobody got time for that with crabapples. Anyway, I'm telling you this story because um, now, though, this year, because we've had all that moisture, um, there's just crabapples everywhere. All over the grass. The kids are throwing them at each other. You know, it's, it's a fun thing. But, but. That's not the problem. wasn't um, It was it was diseased from the top down. But what Jesus is doing in this is a miracle from from the roots up. And by the way, this is the the only miracle in the Gospels that Jesus does as a miracle of destruction. All of his miracles were positive miracles, healing someone, you know, providing a. Multiplying the loaves and the fishes, you know, walking on water, commanding the wind and the waves—all of that was a positive miracle. This is the one miracle that causes death and destruction. Isn't that telling of what he's talking about? Did you know that uh, in 70 AD, you know, all of these things, these, this curse that Jesus is is putting on this tree and ultimately putting on the nation of Israel. Jesus talks about somewhere uh, in, in Luke 19, it said, one stone won't be on another. When we get to Mark 13, um, it'll be, it's called the Olivet Discourse. And it's also the same as Matthew 24, and it's, there's a lot of language about the end times when Jesus is going to come back and stuff like that. But also in those chapters, you know, many people argue about um, what, what it's talking about, the context of what it's talking about. But a lot of people agree, including me, that a lot of the context that's happening in the Olivet Discourse towards the end, which we'll get to in a little while, is actually talking about... A prophecy that's going to happen near, in in the near future. Jesus, in fact, says it. This generation and soon, coming soon, judgment, you know, talking about all this scary judgment language. In 70 A.D., this temple that Jesus walked into and cleared was destroyed by the Romans they came in and it knocked it down and there has been no jewish temple since 70 AD all the way to now we can actually look over to israel and see there was a mount in which this temple stood on and was in fact the jewish people go to the wall of it and they're at the wailing wall it's called the wailing wall cuz they're 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 desperate and 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 sad you know crying that their temple's been taken away from them for 2000 years and they long for the day That's prophesied that a new temple will one day be. So, this judgment that Jesus pronounced on the nation of Israel, much of it has taken place way before our lifetime. This is a picture of of showing us that we need to take worship of Jesus seriously. We ought to be sitting in the seats wondering and examining our faith, to see, are we really going through the motions? Are we living off of our friends, our our spouses, our parents' faith? Or when Jesus comes back, will he find that I'm truly faithful with him, that I have a relationship with him, that I didn't reject him when he came knocking at the door of my heart? Instead of Wanting him to do the things that I believe were necessary for him to do for my life, like the Jewish people when he came in the city at the time, and he didn't come up and set up his, his kingly rule physically, but he was coming to take care of their spiritual needs, to take care of their sin, to, to start a spiritual kingdom. Will you ask yourself, am I a part of the spiritual kingdom of Jesus? Now let me show you one way you can know that you are a part of Jesus' kingdom and that you have true faith. And it goes back to the title of our message. Do you have fruit? See, we're we're saying that that Judaism was fruitless religion and it continues on to be that. But for God's people, he wants us to bear fruit. I'm going to go to John Chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. Jesus says this, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. He uses that same language of what Peter said. The fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Will we be found faithful? And it's not through outward actions. Because Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. You must abide in me. You must live in me. You must trust me for the salvation of your soul. And then... When you abide in Christ, when you trust in Jesus, that it's through Christ alone that you can't do anything to make yourself right with God, but that you are a sinner headed towards the fire, headed towards hell. But that Jesus graciously came in at the right time to save sinners, including you and me, if we trust in Him, and when you do that and you believe in Him, something happens, and the Spirit of God now comes to reside in you and me. Which, by the way, answers the question: Why don't Christians worship in temples like God's people did a long time ago? Well, there is no more temple. There is no need for a temple any more because God has made His people His temple. When the Spirit of God takes up residence in a new believer because he's trusted in Jesus, the Bible now says we are the temple of God. And Ephesians 2 actually goes on to talk about, and I'm going to have to skip a bunch of verses because I knew we weren't going to make it through all these verses, but I want to make it to my my last verse in Ephesians answering this question, why don't Christian worship in temples? It says, so then... The temple was always pointing towards Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus. What did they do at the temple exactly? It was sacrifices. I mean, on the week of Passover, there had to have been tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of sheep slaughtered that week. It's actually recorded that they're slaughtered. Why? Because what did Passover represent? It represented God passing over the sins of his people by slaying a lamb and spreading the blood on a doorpost back when he delivered the the Israelites out of Egypt. And that's what they were celebrating on this week, but they didn't realize that the real Passover lamb was being led to the slaughter. That's Jesus himself. He had to be rejected in order to be slaughtered. And he came and his blood was spilt on that cross, for you and for me. It was always pointing towards the death of Jesus. And now we are the temple of God, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you and me. The question for us is, do we bear fruit? Has God been doing things in our lives? Can I look back and say I have the fruits of the Spirit more than I have ever had? That that God is growing me. I I once was an addict and now I'm clean. I once was uh, stuck in sexual sins but now I'm living a holy and pure life. Doesn't mean we don't mess up anymore. It just means that God is making us more holy every day, every year of our lives. And that is That is the evidence that we have true faith. We have a relationship with Jesus rather than being stuck in fruitless religion. If that's you, if you're wondering where you're at and you need to talk to someone, that's why I believe small groups is such a great thing to do, to think about, to pray about, to to just start building relationships with other people. Because if you're anything like me, I'm a verbal processor. I need to to bounce things off of people and to talk to people and and to be reassured and reminded of God's truths. And so if that's you, I would encourage you, go have some fun at the tailgate today and go talk to uh, people. Please get, get involved with a small group. If you need prayer here today, I would love to pray with you um, before you go. So let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, God, hoping that our worship is enough. God, we don't ever want to be flippant. We don't ever want to be irreverent, Lord. You to serve. Our praise and worship, especially on Sunday, but every other day of our lives as well. Help us never to be found unfaithful and and fruitless. God, we need your help. Jesus, we need to know how to abide in you so that we can truly bear fruit for you. Because ultimately, we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. You continue to let this earth and world spin until this message goes to the ends of the earth and gathers up all those whom you've decided to save. So help us to be faithful, to carry this message on, and to abide in you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.